Another defense to selling narcotics is that you were not the seller. We often come across situations where someone may be a drug user and they're in an area where drugs are being sold, but the prosecution is unable to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that our client was the one actually doing the selling of the drugs. If you were merely present, that is not enough to find you liable for this charge minute that I'm thinking about my business instead of thinking about the craziness of an escort and all the things that go on, man, I make more money, right? So at 30000 it's probably, not probably, it's not worth it. So if you're an entrepreneur that makes 30000 in net or less, stop listening to the internet telling you to move over to an escort because you're going to get yourself into a lot of, you're going to get entangled. And we don't want that to happen. Stick with your LLC right now. Focus on making money. Focus on having some net profit and growing your company. That's what I want you to focus on right now. And then make sure you still hire a tax professional that can go ahead and make sure your taxes are filed each and every year, get you the proper deductions, all that good stuff. Yes, of course. But if you only netted 30k or less, then your business is not at the at the size yet to go escort. That's that's fine. You're right where you need to be right now. Keep making money, keep netting some profitability, and keep growing from here. Okay. Now, for my people that are now doing 50,000 plus in net profit, 50k plus, I'm going to use 60k as an example. But if you're doing about 50k, if you're doing about 50k net or more, then that's when escort may start being a conversation for you to say, you know what, is it worth my time? Is it worth the savings to move into an escort, uh, my LLC being taxed as an escort? Is it worth my time now? Let's talk about that. So I netted 60K. Now remember, at 60,000, if I was just an LLC that was being taxed as a sole proprietor, at that $60,000, I would have paid $9,180 in self-employment tax if I was a sole proprietor for my LLC. Well, now, if I have my LLC being taxed as an S-Corp, okay, great. I'm going to do the same thing now. 50% of that, of that net is going to go towards my reasonable salary. The other 50% goes towards distribution where I get a K-1 at the end of the year. Okay, great. My reasonable salary is 30000 I'm only paying 15.3% self-employment tax on the reasonable salary. I'm bypassing the 15.3 on the other $30,000, right, that I'm getting. Cool. That means that I have now a $4,590 tax savings now. $4,590 tax savings, right, net savings. Well, now remember, on the same side, we're talking about state fees, we're talking about attorney, CPA, your time that's associated. Well, if I'm paying about five dollars to $800 in state fees, and I pay about $2,000 to my CPA, let's just say in total I'm paying about $2,500 out. Well, if I'm putting $2,500 out, now you're talking about another $2,000 that's there in the savings after I'm done paying out. Well, now, it may start being worth my time at that point, if I got an uh, extra $2,000 in my pocket now, which comes out to be, let's say, uh, uh, let, uh, an extra uh, $180 to $200 a month. That extra $180 to $200 a month that I got now, 
I can put that towards my marketing. I could put that towards Facebook ads. I could put that towards a lot of different things. Over here, I'm not getting anything. I'm wasting my time. Over here, I'm actually getting a net savings now after I'm done hiring the proper professionals and paying my state fees, right? So that's the reason why 30K is not um, a good, a, a really for me, uh, this is just me, not a breaking point for you at 30K. Once you start hitting 50, 60K, that breaking point becomes now, uh, it becomes better at that point. It becomes worth your time. And not to mention, if you, if you did 60K on the net, odds are you're going to continue to grow each and every year from that point. So maybe next year, 70, 80. And as you begin to make more net, now at that point, you'll start to see more savings. And it becomes even more of your time that, that, that um, more savings now, which now you can put into your pocket. That's ultimately the goal. So, the entire point of this video here is that as an entrepreneur, you have to make the right decisions for your business, okay? You got to make the right decisions. Don't take my word for it. Again, don't take my word. I'm giving you just my experience and with having a tax franchise and having a lot of tax professionals that are around me every single day, CPAs and et cetera, and even with my experience, you got to do what's best for you and you got to make sure you get the right people on your team that are going to give you the right information. Please do not go on Instagram, do not go on YouTube and just say, hey, this guy, John, said get an S-Corp because it saves money on taxes. And John didn't even, he doesn't even understand your business. He don't know how much profit that you make. He don't know where you currently are in your business. He don't know your responsibility level, your organization level. If he, don't, if he or she don't know none of that, you shouldn't be taking advice from that person. Sit down with somebody first that's going to understand the business understand your numbers and crunch them to figure out if it's worth your time. Dang, this ain't the first time you thought it up with that, huh? <laughs> Gotta just float out like you, you've been on this for a minute. That's what I'm on. So five years from now, um, I'll have one of the leading softwares when it comes to financial literacy and credit education. I love it. Do you specifically target black people? No. No? It's just, that's just people who relate to me the most yeah. right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. They like this way. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Well, yeah. well, I, I, I want to say uh, thank you, man. And please let the people know how they can get in touch with you. At him 500 on Instagram. So follow me on Instagram at him 500. That's the easiest way to contact me. Um, stay in touch. I shoot DMs back, you get voice memos, you might get a video, um, just real connected with everybody. DMs is always close to empty, to where they, I keep them open. So, you reply to all your DMs? For the most part, yes. I, bro, I, I, was, I did it for a while, and then I just got, I got so backed up, yeah. and now I can't catch up, so I'm... I'm you know what? I'm just going to sit down this week and I'm going to go through all. It's probably like a thousand. Just words. delete all of those and start fresh. And then stay on top of it.
And who would have thought of that? That's crazy. Like, you, yo, this has been something that's been bothering me for like three months now. Yeah. He's like, oh, delete them. Start over. Thank you. Yeah, because you're going to check them. <laughs> They've been unread for two weeks. The message doesn't even matter anymore. Delete the story. It's story oh. replies. And it's, it's, you'll get a whole bunch of likes and delete it and restart over. That is so amazing. First, okay, thank you. All right, I appreciate yeah, you. You just gave me a bar. You just gave me a bar. That was worth the price of admission. All right, cool. I want you to leave us with um, something that the people can uh, take with them and hold on to for the rest of this year, for the rest of next year. Um, just leave us with a closing note. With a closing note? I got it. Before you get there, before you get there, give me a formula. I like your formulas. You have like the way you teach. Okay. Give me a formula and then we'll close. A formula. Um, I'm gonna give you guys a formula on something that everybody needs and that's how to clean your credit. Uh, that's one of the things I don't believe in charging for myself. I believe in if I get on the platform, the relationships I've been able to build with people like you, that I should be able to give our community that for free. Mm -hmm. So I tell people this is that the reason why you can't get a lot of the negative items removed from your credit report is because there's a company called SageStream, there's a company called LexisNexis, there's a company called CoreLogix, there's a company called ARS, and there's a company called Innovis. Those are secondary data furnishing companies. Those companies house the information that verifies the negative information on your credit report that helps match the collection agency's information, your foreclosures, your repossessions. They match those, that information with your secondary data furnishing companies. If you opt out and suppress these five furnishing companies, it will enhance your deletions by 60%. When you do a, a dispute method, you have to understand as well is that only way you can remove a negative item if it's inaccurate or if it's unverifiable. We cause inaccuracies by removing these, I mean unverifiable, by removing the secondary data furnishers. That causes it to be unverifiable because this is where they verify your data. So we opt out of those. Then we make things unverifiable. Meaning, look at the names and addresses, any misspelled names, any wrong addresses on your credit report are most likely tied to negative accounts or accounts in your credit report. Remove them. You should only have one. Boom. You can do that over the phone. You never send a dispute letter to remove addresses and um, misspelled names. You do it over the phone. Now, you've caused inaccuracies and you help make things um, inaccurate and help cause the negative items to be unverifiable just by opting out and suppressing those. So now when you do a dispute, I tell people use a 609 letter, find a template, make it sound like it's personal. Don't just use it cut and paste. Take some of the words out, make it sound personal, make it sound like it's coming from first person. You're talking to the credit bureau. Then what do you do? You send your disputes in. That's one way to get negative items removed. Biggest bar is most people don't know there's a company called Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB.gov. That's the government regulation site 
that governs the credit bureaus. The credit bureaus are private companies. So TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax are privately owned. Well, CFPB controls them. Well, if you don't want to have to, if you go through and you suppress the secondary agencies and you make things unverifiable and inaccurate, and it still gets, it comes back and the company says, oh, that. Instagram, private jets, fast cars, and throwing money into the air like confetti were only a few of the posts real estate mogul and social media influencer Hush Puppy was known for making. Little did he know, he was leaving a digital trail for all us here at the FBI, and that flaunting led us to the truth, a massive money laundering scam. In total, he had stolen 1.6 billion in United Arab Emirates Durham. It's a crime that will leave you speechless. I know I was. Here's the scoop on just how he did it, what he was spending all that money on, and how he was finally caught. Sometimes, things can get pretty slow here at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I know growing up, I thought it would be like I saw in the movies, you know, arresting the criminal masterminds of the world and bringing them to justice. Look, here's the truth about the job. Not all cases have stories worthy of worldwide news coverage. Spoiler alert, many times this line of work is a 9 to 5 like any other, with a lot of paperwork. But sometimes there's a case that's so out of this world that we feel we've earned our $66,000 per year salary. Hush Puppy was one such case. Here's a bit of backstory on Hush Puppy, in case you didn't know. I know I didn't, but frankly, I'm not on Instagram all that much. His real name, Ramon Abbas. He is a social media influencer and a self-proclaimed real estate mogul from Nigeria. For what it's worth, he definitely knows how to play the social media game. Mr. Abbas has over 2.5 million followers, and at 37 years old, he has made millions of dollars. Dollars he now very publicly spends, and posts all sorts of lavish lifestyle pictures to the internet. And when I say lavish, I definitely mean it. Common posts for Mr. Hush Puppy shows him standing in front of what we can only assume are private jets, going on huge shopping sprees where he is seen splurging on clothes from Gucci, Versace, and Vendi, where shirts can cost $1,000 or more. Oh, and of course, tons of photos of him in front of a multitude of super-fast, and super expensive cars. Some of his favorite driving machines are a $300,000 Rolls Royce or his $200,000 Ferrari. But he also lived in an incredibly expensive and exclusive Palazzo Versace in Dubai. He even has videos online of him taking off from a helicopter right from his home on the waterfront. Basically, this man did everything he could to let people know he was rich. Very, very rich. 
and Hush Puppy soon learned that his talent for curating a social media following, I mean, who wouldn't want to live vicariously through this man's millionaire lifestyle, would give us here at the FBI everything we could ever need to secure his arrest. See, here's the thing about Hush Puppy. He made all of his money illegally by a scheme called money laundering. The idea behind money laundering is simple. Basically, someone will conceal the real source of their money. In Hush Puppy's case, he had stolen millions from banks, private investors, and companies by tricking them into putting money into an account that they were then using for their own purchases. When our team here at the FBI got a chance to look at the evidence we'd collected after his arrest, we found phone and email records that contained over 100,000 fraud files and over 2 million addresses that looked to be potential victims. The companies that Hush Puppy targeted spanned over two continents. It was a worldwide crime. He had stolen $923,000 when a paralegal at a New York law firm wired money into an account that belonged to Mr. Abbas. This paralegal had received instructions to wire the money into a certain bank account that Abbas and his team tricked them into using, and that $923,000 was meant to go to a client's real estate refinancing. It instead went to anything Mr. Abbas wanted. But that's just one instance of Abbas's manipulation. He stole $14.7 million from a foreign financial institution, having them send money into a Romanian bank account. Other evidence shows that he also used tricked victims into putting money into United States bank accounts as well. Arguably, his biggest potential scam was when he tried to steal $124 million from an English Premier League soccer club. Luckily, all we know about this attempted scam is just that. It was an attempt. To be honest, this kind of criminal activity makes us FBI agents sick to our stomachs. Last year alone, upwards of $1.7 billion were stolen by means of cyber fraud. It's an ongoing problem that just doesn't seem to go away. Like a scar of guilt that won't fade with time. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. There is no Nevada law that prohibits the concealed carry or open carry of firearms in casinos. Even if the casino puts up a sign that says, no guns allowed, those signs carry no legal weight. However, casinos are private institutions and can make their own ground rules. Therefore, casino security has every right to order gun carriers to leave the property. And if gun carriers refuse to leave or stay away when asked, they could be charged with trespass. As a misdemeanor, Trespass carries up to six months in jail and or up to $1,000 in fines. Plus, the casino could permanently ban the person from ever coming back. Even if a casino permits guns on its premises, 
it is always a Category C felony in Nevada to conceal carry without a current and valid CCW permit from Nevada or a reciprocal state. The penalties include one to five years in prison and possibly up to $10,000 in fines. But CCW permit holders who simply forget to bring their permit with them face just a $25 civil fine. A lot of innocent people get accused of firearm crimes in Nevada. If you're facing criminal charges, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The experienced criminal defense attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group have helped thousands of people get their charges reduced or dismissed while saving their gun rights. Nobody wants to find out that they have an outstanding warrant. And we get a lot of calls from people that have uh, gone to renew their license at the DMV, for example, and found out that they had a warrant. Uh, maybe they were arrested. Maybe they were just told about it. Uh, sometimes people get pulled over and an officer may write them a citation and not actually arrest them on the warrant, but inform them that they have a warrant. But whatever the facts and circumstances may be, it's never fun to find out that you have a warrant for your arrest. Uh, depending on what type of warrant it is, we may be able to go into court for you and have the court quash the warrant. Uh, quashing the warrant basically means uh, when you appear, either personally or through counsel, the court once again has jurisdiction over you. They no longer have to utilize the warrant to arrest you and bring you before the court. When you voluntary, voluntarily appear before the court, there's a pretty good chance that the court will quash the warrant, allow you to remain out of custody until you resolve your legal matter. Uh, a warrant can lie for uh, a felony charge, a misdemeanor charge, or even a traffic ticket. And it's very important to clear up your warrants because obviously uh, nobody wants to go to jail, especially unexpectedly. So um, if you have a warrant, um, call 702 Defense. Uh, when I when I when I go out of town, I actually go to Peachy. I go in. That's all I was using. It's seven fifty a day. Yes. And he said, "Yo, he'll just go down there. He paid the seven fifty. Yes. Leave. They go pick it That's up." That's what I was doing before I got my lot. And what's right. crazy, I was paying all this money to Peachy this whole time, not knowing that the lot that I was soon to have was right next to it. Right I next door. Um, here's the here's the clutch, Hutch clutch play. So Peachy, they use a third party called Wait. Uh, Wait, W-A-Y. Yeah. And I was paying half the price that Peachy charges. On way. If on way. Yo, they be having joints for $2, That's what bro. I was paying. $2, because this was before I knew about the airport drop. I'm like, I'm not going to be paying $36 for these parking tickets no more. Yeah. I'm going to drop the car off at the airport, mm -hmm. parking lot, Peachy, pay $2, and then charge the guests for the, for the $2. <laughs> and then, so the beautiful thing is, they'll pick the car up from Peachy, go about their way to travel. When they drop the car off at Peachy, they can take the Peachy shuttle back to the airport. Mm. Smooth process. Perfect. Perfect. 
smooth process. If I have to pick up the car, or one of my team members have to pick up the car, right? They'll take the train, this Atlantic station, there's a train that goes straight to the airport. So they don't have to worry about driving, getting caught in traffic. Yeah. It was a smooth ride to the airport, pick the car up, and move on from there. So what's, so, uh, and it's so crazy because you've been doing this for- it's only two years. Two years. We're going crazy. And you're just now, you just now put out your course. And yeah, that's a fact. Yo, I, I don't know how many courses you sold, <laughs> like, the, like the first release, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Knocking on my door for this. Yeah, because people been asking you for yes. for two years. Yes. Yo, put me on. Yes, I've been sharing this. Yeah, and I and I for saw free. Right, right, right. But you know, my my boys, they they was like, bro, drop the course, package right. this material, and drop in, in a course form. So I ain't gonna lie, him five hundred Marcus, he he was on my neck, mm. Neo on my neck about dropping a course, yeah. calling me, bro, you gotta drop a course. You know how he talks. Right. You gotta drop the course, or we're gonna do it. What you mean you're gonna drop the tour? All right, all right, I'll, I'll drop it next week. Right, right. So I posted my Instagram, like, yo, everybody, I'm dropping this course. Here's the date. I didn't even build it out yet. I knew setting a date is gonna force me to do it. Because mm. I'm so used to giving out the game for free, enjoying the, the responses, that I didn't feel right charging for it. Yeah. Right? But that, I got a bar with that where if I don't charge, you know how Neo's to be talking yeah. to. If I don't charge, they're not going to put it into action. They're not yeah. going to respect it. You already know that, how that sure. works, too. So I said, cool. I'm going to charge. You see, I'm going to test out the price. I charged $12.99. As soon as I put on my Instagram stories, I'm launching the course. I'm doing pre-sales. Cash at me. I got... Cash at Cash at went crazy. Man, man, look at my cash app right here. Where my phone at? Cash app right here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show it you wasn't a link. It wasn't no credit Straight. card. And they trust me. Most people are like, nah, that's a cash That's a fact. That's a fact. I, and I believe because you built a, and you know, for those that know you, know, like, you are a very credible person, yeah, very honest. Like, it's yeah. not, we know that, like, Steve. money ain't your biggest thing. Yeah. You feel me? So, when you put out something, they're like, yo, I'm here for it. I rock That's a with fact. it. That's what happened, man. I got instant feedback. I, I didn't know that people were willing to pay for this information, but I had to stop devaluing, devaluing this information. This information, if I had it, I would have saved that $2,800. Yeah. I would have saved all the money I lost in the beginning stages, st uh, stages to the point where I now just... Yo, here's the course information. If you need to know, I have it all documented here. So Same what's 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 in the course? Talk to me about the what's whole in process. the process. How to buy a vehicle. The best way how to not get finessed by the salespeople. <laughs> Anytime somebody goes to the dealership, you but think you're gonna be there in there for an hour? How long is most people be in the dealership for? Forever. Four hours, five hours, six hours. And they beat your brain until until you feel like you would just wanna die. Mm. So that's when they get you in the finance room and they have you signing all these. Oh, you need warranty? It's just going to be an extra $20 on your monthly payment. <laughs> you sign here. <laughs> man, just <get> money. <laughs> Give me the keys, man. Give me money. It prevents that in that session. Right. I teach how to uh, figure out what business model you want. Do you want to be an owner in this business, meaning you cash out a car or finance a car under your name? 
or do you want to be a broker where you're a middleman between the cars? Meaning you don't have to get the car yourself. David, his Range Rover, somebody wants a Range Rover, I'm in the middle of saying, yo, you need a Range Rover? David got it for you. He charges $200 a day. You can pay him directly and run me my $50 for letting you know about that booking. Mm. That's a broker. You're the middleman. Yo, let me ask you this. Because a guy sent me a DM. Um, hold on. Um, a, a guy sent me a... a I think I made a post about it, and um, a guy, uh, he sent me a DM about um, his car. On this episode of The Lawyer You Know, we talk about how to go from being a lawyer to a judge. Most people know that for some time you have to be a lawyer before you can actually become a judge. And I bring my dad on to explain the process of how a lawyer becomes a judge. He served on judicial nominating commissions in the past. It's a group who does a lot of work in nominating lawyers and evaluating lawyers that potentially could become judges. We've done some podcasts and videos in the past that we'll link below on Supreme Court justice nominees, on the process of becoming a Supreme Court justice. And there are a ton of different judges and judicial positions that come available. So what I want to start out talking about, Dad, is what is the basic requirements for a lawyer to become a judge or even be considered for a judgeship? Well, there are different requirements for different levels of court. We've got four levels of court in Florida. We have the Supreme Court, we have District Courts of Appeal, we have Circuit Courts, we have County Courts. For the Supreme Court, the District Courts of Appeals, it's 10 years as a lawyer. For county courts and circuit courts, it's five years of a lawyer. Uh, of course, they have to be members of the Florida Bar. And they In have Florida. to live, right, and they have to live within the area that they're applying for a judgeship. So if it's a Pinellas County judge, they have to live in Pinellas County. If it's a Pinellas County position that's open, a right. judgeship that's open. Okay. So you have to be a lawyer for at least five years for those lower level state courts, and you have to be a lawyer for at least 10 years for the upper level ones. Correct. Okay, anything else, or is it just how long you've been a lawyer, basically? Just how long you've been a lawyer. To be eligible. Right. Now, there are, hey, there are exceptions. If you're in one of those small counties in North Florida where you only have 40,000 people in the county, then you can be just a lawyer and be nominated. So you don't have to have any experience. Right. Basically. And in fact, years ago, you didn't even have to be a lawyer to be a judge because those counties were so small, sometimes they didn't have a lawyer that lived in the whole county. Okay. But now we're large enough, and so we can have this requirement. Okay, so but now you have to be a lawyer. Have to be a lawyer. And in what is the cutoff? 40,000 people in your county? Right. So if you have more than 40,000 people in your county, you still have to have that five or 10 year requirement. Correct. Okay. Do you have to be a lower court judge, like a county court judge or circuit court judge, before you can become an appellate court judge or a Supreme Court judge? There is no requirement for it. There's no on-the-job training requirement or anything like that for you to apply to be a judge. Okay, so we've gotten the basic requirements out, the years of experience in being a lawyer. Talk about the process and the different ways that lawyers can become judges because you don't just apply and become a judge, you have to go through different processes. 
Explain what those are like. There's two ways in Florida to become a judge. One is you're appointed by the governor, or two, you're elected by the people. And what we're talking about right now are state court judges. These are strictly state court judges. Okay, so that's important. We're going to differentiate and talk about federal court later, but right now everything we're talking about is state court judges. So there's two ways, appointed by the governor or voted on by the actual county that you're elected in. Right. Okay. The Supreme Court uh, justices and appellate court justices are always, those are always appointed by the governor. It's the circuit court, which we call the trial courts, and the county court. Those are the ones that you can win by election. So the county court and circuit courts that you call the trial court, those are the ones that affect your lives. Those are the ones making the decisions in your cases for the majority of the time. They're the ones in criminal court and civil court that if you file a lawsuit or if you get arrested, your case is going to come before one of those judges that is usually elected by the local county that they're going to represent. So you have a voice, you have an opportunity to vote for local judges, and again, shameless plug, but also for extra explanation, we explain the entire voting process for judges and go through the local judges that get voted on in our county on this podcast that we're gonna link in the comments below. Comment if you have any specific questions about how the local elections are handled and what you should look for in judges, how you should vote, and if you should vote at all. So make sure you either comment below, go listen to our podcast, you can get more info on that because you actually have a chance to have a voice for the judges that are going to affect your lives. So there are also some situations where judges are appointed to those local positions, whether it's a county court judge or circuit court judge, why does that happen? And talk a little bit about how long these judges are in office. Well, judges are in office, I guess, but on the bench. Well, they're elected for six years, and they have to run again every six years. And is that across the board? Across the board. Circuit, appellate, Supreme Court? Correct. All six years. Okay. All six years. The difference is in the appellate court, the Supreme Court, and the district courts of appeal, those are what's called merit retention votes. So people only vote on those judges to say, Hector has access to that account. You're going to get yourself in a mess. We run into it all the time, helping people work through these things. So doing all of that, then you work your debt snowball and work your way back through the inactive accounts and you clear them off by in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it. And then you're clear. And most of the time, 25 cents on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar of what they say you owe is going to sound more like about what you originally owed or a little bit less, depending on who you're dealing with, what kind of debt it was, and all that kind of thing. But they'll settle with you if you offer them cash now. I will send you money this instant on this debit card this prepaid debit card off to the side or this checking account off to the side or I'll send you a a cashier's check overnight and pay the FedEx charges, but do not let them in your account. You'll get messed up and messed over. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, click the subscribe button to get the latest content and check out these other great clips from the show.
yeah, that was torture. But it built something in me that I hadn't had before then. Uh, it gave me a drive. It, it, it gave me a, a, a commitment that that I had never discovered in myself as a as a 21 year old. And and let me just say how it was so easy for me to get caught up in the drug selling when I came home in 1998 because that's what the culture was doing. When I came home in 1998, Master P had just dropped an a, 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 a album called Ghetto Dope. Ghetto Dope. Me, 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 crack like this. And it taught you how to cook crack from step one to step 10. So when I came home after being gone from 91 to 98 and I come back and I look into the black community, everybody's selling dope. The dope man image is what the girls want, is what the preachers like. Everybody like the dope man image. So everybody's selling dope. They rapping about it. So, man, I just get in line with the culture. I get in line with the culture because the culture almost made it like it, it was logical to sell dope over working because the rewards were so great, Right. So many black children of our culture followed that mon that bullshit, nigga hustling, selling dope. Me, 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 me crack like this. So we went from that to trapping to now drilling and killing. So the culture reshaped me after all the good that TYC had done. My culture reshaped me in the pimping and the drug dealing. I went back to robbing, nigga snatching purses, all that shit, nigga, because that's what the culture was doing. A category E felony in Nevada would include possession of narcotics, a second time charge for peeping, solicitation of a minor for prostitution, or recruitment into a criminal gang. Most category E felonies would result initially in a sentence of probation, but uh, they could also result in a prison sentence of up to four years in the state prison. For record seal on a category E felony, you are eligible to seek a record seal seven years after completion of your sentence. You're watching FJTN, the Federal Judicial Television Network. Washington, D.C., the Federal Judicial Center, and the U.S. Sentencing Commission present Sentencing and Guidelines, Basic Application. Here is your moderator for today's program, Nancy Filson.
as you just heard, I'm Nancy Filsuf, and I'm a Senior Education Specialist for the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to this afternoon's broadcast on Sentencing and Guidelines Basic Application. Uh, this is actually a third in the series of broadcasts on sentencing and guidelines that has been presented by the Federal Judicial Center in partnership with the United States Sentencing Commission. Let me tell you a little bit about this broadcast. We're going to be um, broadcasting for approximately two hours, and at that midpoint, we'll probably have a five-minute break. Now, let me tell you more about the broadcast. What, we've, what we're going to do is a major portion of the broadcast, we are going to be showing a videotape of a training program that the United States Sentencing Commission uh, presented in Clearwater, Florida, not too long ago on basic applications. So what we have done is we have divided this tape into four segments. And in between the segments, we have experts from the Sentencing Commission that we will introduce to you in a few minutes. And they will provide commentary on the segments and also they will answer your questions that you will be faxing in um, during the pro program broadcast. I'll give you the fax number in just a few minutes. Also, I want to show you that we have some information that you can find about the broadcast on the Federal Judicial Center DCN website. And there's a lot of very good information about the Sentencing Commission in here. So I really urge you to get this information if you haven't already done so. Also in this packet, you will notice that we have provided for your convenience a fax form that you can use when you are faxing in your questions to us. Now before I forget, let me give you the fax number. It's 1-800-488-0397. Also, this program has been approved for Continuing Legal Education Credit, or CLE, and you can find out how to apply for this credit also by going to the Federal Judicial Center DCN website. I believe I'm finished with my announcements. What I'd like to do is to introduce to you my colleagues from the Sentencing Commission. First of all, we have Rusty Burrows, who is the principal advisor in the commission. And we also have Rachel Pierce, who is an education and sentencing practice specialist. And both are from the Office of the Education and Sentencing Practice. Well, Rusty and um, Rachel, welcome to the program. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much, Nancy. And I know that you do have some comments that you want to provide to us before we start the first segment. So, Rachel, why don't you start first? Thank you, Nancy. Good afternoon. On behalf of the Sentencing Commission, I'd like to welcome you to Sentencing and Guidelines Basic Application. Today, on the pre-recorded videotape, you will be seeing instruction from Andy Purdy in the Office of General Counsel, Frank Larry in the Office of Education and Sentencing Practice, and Rusty Burris. As, as Nancy mentioned earlier, this videotape was originally taped at the 8th Annual National Seminar on Sentencing Guidelines, 
which occurred in Clearwater, Florida in 1999. Rusty, would you like to tell us a little bit more about how the broadcast is going to go today? I'd be glad to. Uh, as you know from the title of our program today, the focus is on basic guidelines application. And we're going to do that by breaking it down into four segments. In the first segment, we're going to look at uh, some of the general application principles. We'll look at the Chapter 2 guidelines for offense, offenses. We'll also look at the Chapter 3 adjustments. In our second segment, we'll look at criminal history determinations and also how to use the sentencing table in coming up with an appropriate guideline range. In the third segment, we'll look at relevant conduct. And then in the fourth segment, we'll look at multiple counts with just a brief uh, look at departures. Now, after segments one and three, uh, Rachel, you and I will be coming back to just make a few comments. Uh, after segments two and four, uh, we'll be coming back to take the uh, questions that the uh, viewers will be asking us. Uh, and in terms of the be very stigmatizing. Boy is definitely ha happy with this decision because he took the social media and made a statement immediately when this happened or, you know, as soon as it, it made news. Now, in his post on social media, Rack Boy had this to say, man. And it just seemed like, man, he was really, really excited about the judgment. But this is what he said verbatim. He said, this has been a very lengthy and tedious process. I'm grateful for the outcome, and I'm thankful it's all behind me. I'm excited to get back into the studio and continue creating music for my fans. I wish the best for all parties on current and future endeavors. It's Rack Boys, SZN, Are You Dumb? And then I don't know what emoji that is, but it looks like a circle. And then hashtag Rack Boys, hashtag Jersey. So, man... It looks like, man, things are looking up for Rack Boy. And he was even posted, he even reposted some of the people who took the social media to make memes about the situation like this. He reposted this, man, or somebody, they posted the, the they took his head and put it on Chris Tucker's face from the uh, Rush Hour movie. And it basically says this, it said, Rack Boy Cam all summer after winning that 1.7 million laughing emojis. Nothing but, you know what, you know what, you know what, for him now, man. And I had to block out those other things because, you know, they're not good for this platform. Now, Rack Boy thought it was funny, obviously, because he posted this. He said, chill, y'all cooking on the internet. And it was more memes that people were posting, but, man, it goes to show that, you know, he was taking this real well. Of course, because he won, but, man, it seems like PMB rocking them might be punching this punching the air right now, man. They thinking about that money that they just lost. Now, in the news article, it doesn't say what type of, you know, judgment it was. It doesn't say where where they sued in civil court. I'm sure it was, man, cuz I mean, I don't know, man. When it comes to copyrights, I'm not really sure. But it just seems like, man, for them for all the news publications and, you know, hip-hop sites to pick this up it must have been a clear-cut deal, and this is official, man. So it looks like Rack Boy got a little bit of change to invest into his music career, and PMB rocking them, they're going to lose on the front end and a little bit of the publishing and all that on the back end. But I don't think this is going to hurt their career in any type of way, man. I mean, YF and Lucci, 
his hands are full right now. He's got his thing that he's dealing with. And PMB Rock is still just making sure that he's cranking out hits. I know he just did a joint pretty much with everybody from OTF, including a song with uh, King Von that, that he did before, that they did together before he passed away. So it seems like he's back in that mode to be working on music. So all in all, maybe this is a win for everybody. I don't know. I'm just trying to keep it positive, I guess. But what do you guys think, man? Do you think that taking this hit to your pocket for Wyatt Finlucci and PNB Rock specifically is one of the worst things that can happen in the music business? I'll tell you this, man. After looking at a whole bunch of stories, this is a common occurrence. This happens all the time. People pay money to get things right. The other person gets a little piece of the song. Things move on. So, I mean, this might not be the worst thing in the world, but is this just another negative notch on Wyatt and Lucci's belt with everything that he's got going on right now? Now, with that, this being your boy, Big Man, please hit that like button. Please hit that subscribe button. And make sure you hit that notification bell so that way you get a notification every time I drop this hot content and we out of here. Peace. It's the Apprendi versus New Jersey decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. Uh, there, the U.S. Supreme Court talked about what is required in order to have an enhanced maximum statutory penalty. Because our video presentation today, however, is focusing on basic guidelines application, we will not be getting into the determination of statutory penalties or looking at recent case law developments. But for those of you that are interested in Apprendi, and I'm sure that virtually everyone is, uh, the FJTN did an excellent broadcast just last month that looked at Apprendi. Uh, they did a great job. It had an expert panel that was involved in that uh, to include one of our sentencing commissioners, Judge Joe Kendall from the Northern District of Texas. Uh, so we certainly commend you uh, to, to watching that video. We, we think it's, it's, it's an excellent one. Uh, it will be rebroadcast on a couple of occasions upcoming uh, on the FJTN network. Uh, the first will be on uh, February the 14th. Uh, I assume that that's probably like some kind of FJTN Valentine's Day special. And then it will be shown again on March the 14th. Uh, on each of those dates, it'll be shown at both uh, noon and then again at 1 o'clock. Thank you, Rusty. We're going to move on to our final segment in just a moment. But before we do that, Rusty, um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is one of the most important principles to remember when we're applying relevant conduct? Well, I think the main thing, and, and you probably gathered it from the uh, video presentation, uh, was that uh, relevant conduct has to be done on an individualized determination uh, for each and every defendant that is uh, being sentenced and the, and the for which the guidelines are being applied. You have to go through this analysis for each and every one. Uh, and that's true even if you have multiple defendants convicted of just the same count of conviction because that relevant conduct may be different for each of those defendants. And you don't know that until you have gone through that analysis and that application. Uh, now I know that sometimes, uh, if you've done it long enough, 
uh, it starts seeming maybe a little bit intuitive is, is the, the analysis. Uh, but I think uh, always uh, a, a person applying the guidelines would do well to go back to the analysis and be able to articulate where in the analysis they found the relevant conduct to apply or not to apply. Uh, because if an issue is challenged, you have to be able to go back and to justify why you did or did not include something as part of your relevant conduct. Absolutely. Very good point. Okay. It's time to move on to our fourth and final segment of the videotape. It's going to focus on multiple count application, and we're also going to give you a brief discussion of departures. Remember, if you have any questions, please fax them into us now. Once again, our fax number is 1-800-488-0397. Let's go back to the videotape. Of course, as you're applying guidelines, you've got to use the sentencing table, and you've got to come down the table to a certain point and across the table to a certain point to come up with your guideline range. And with multiple counts, of course, one of the practical aspects of it is, hey, well, if I got multiple counts, what point do I use going down the table? If I got multiple counts, do I have multiple points? You know, how do I, I got to have one place that I come down so I can go across from that place to, uh, to find this one range. And the rationale for the multiple count rules one is to determine the single offense level. By using these rules, you will be able to find that one point coming down the table that connects with that one point going across the table that gives you this one guideline range for your multiple counts of conviction. The commission in the multiple count rules is trying to keep from double counting, from punishing a defendant twice the conduct really has already been punished under one of the counts of conviction. We don't want to double punish. Uh, also, to provide incremental punishment. If someone, say, comes into court convicted of multiple offenses, uh, oftentimes people will get multiple punishments for multiple offenses, but typically it is, a, it is an equal amounts of, of punishment. A guy convicted of five robberies probably doesn't get the, the length of time under nine guideline sentencing, uh, five times the time that the guy who committed the one robbery. Rather, it's more of an incremental increase. And our guidelines work to give incremental increases. Yeah, you'll get more time for five robberies than for one, but you're not going to get five times the amount. You're going to get a little bit more for each of the additional what we call harms. And to limit prosecutorial impact. If the guidelines said, oh, every time you get a count of conviction, we're going to add so much more offense levels or so much more time or whatever, Prosecutors say, well, in this case, you know, I can charge 20 counts of embezzlement. Uh, in this other case, I'll just charge one count of embezzlement. And boy, we came out with a whole lot different sentence here just based on purely the way I decided to charge this conduct. And the commission has tried to limit that somewhat in these multiple count rules. Now, as the commission said, we know that when you have multiple counts of conviction, you have multiple violations of law. It's, I mean, it's, it's one and the same. You violate the law multiple times with the multiple counts of conviction. But you don't always have... Alright, so this just happened. Look, so Lil Mosey has reportedly been charged with second-degree rape stemming from an alleged incident that took place in January. 
According to TMZ, the Washington native is currently wanted by local police after he failed to appear for a court hearing on Wednesday, April 21st. This all started after a woman accused Lil Mosey of sexually assaulting her at a cabin. As the story goes, she and a girlfriend went to the undisclosed location to meet up with Mosey and wound up indulging in white claws and champagne. Although one of the alleged victims initially consented to having sex with a 19-year-old rapper in a vehicle, she eventually blacked out. A short time later, she alleges Mosey got on top of her and powdered her legs apart so he could have sex with her again. The woman recalled having pain in her leg muscles when Mosey was pushing her legs. Once she came to, she says another man was forcing himself on her. In the affidavit, the woman says that she suffered injuries, including bruising on her arm, neck, and in her knee. She also claims that she got a message from one of the people at the party that said Mosey and another guy were talking about training two girls. If convicted, Lil Mosey could face up to life in prison. But yeah, what do you guys think? Did Mosey really do it? Did he not do it? Let us know your thoughts in the comment section below. Hit that subscribe button and notification button to stay up to date on all of our new videos. And as always, make sure to keep it all the way locked to hiphopdx.com. And what did people do? They flooded 6ix9ine's post with the statement... I want that 6ix9ine without Takashi. Talk, talk about trolls, man. I mean, why they brought that man back up, I have no idea. I think he was attempting to fade into obscurity, but Doja was like, uh-uh-uh. There's no fading in obscurity here, sir. Come on back onto the stage so we can make jokes about you or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, if you noticed, we've been dropping stories sporadically here and there involving Jay-Z, right? And in all of the stories, Jay-Z never responds, which in my opinion is a boss move, right? And it goes to show you, if the man was a complete idiot, right? Which we know he ain't, but if he was, the less he says, the better. We, we view it as, you know, he's above all that. The psychology of that. You see what I'm saying? Some of y'all think this is a hip-hop gossip site or, 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 you know what I'm saying, YouTube, whatever, right? But, bruh, this is a psych class. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, Funk Master Flex has provided his input as to why Jay-Z never says anything on social media. But keep in mind, this is what Funk says that Jay-Z says. I'm not saying he's lying. I mean, we get a lot of reputable information from Funk Master Flex. Anyway, he stated that he had a private conversation with Jay-Z and then he gave us the details about the convo. If you had a private conversation, why do I now know about it? You see what I'm saying? You, you now made it not private. If you have a friend, right, that you share something privately with, right? And they go on a podcast with Gilly the King and share the deets of your private conversation. That's the kind of ninja that'll push you out of a moving car. You see what I'm saying? Let me keep it going. He said, quote, you know he wants me to tell you why he can't be on social media. He's the most sensitive mother effer on the planet and he can't take ninjas in his comments telling him the truth. Close quote. You, he wanted you to tell us that? 
That's strange, right? I mean, I don't think he wanted you to put it like that. He continued on and said, okay, he can't take it. He can't open up social media. Do you know what Jay does? He watches social media from a fake page, close quote. You're not his friend, bro. I mean, no cap, you ain't his friend. You see what I'm saying? Everybody does that. What artist is going to show up in the YouTube comment section and be like, oh, celeb source, I rocks with you. You see what I'm saying? It's too dangerous. They can't co-sign with a channel because, you know, I might go rogue. You follow me? And they may not want to be openly associated with a channel. I get it. You see what I'm saying? If they agree with us, right, and they show up in the comment section like, yo, I sub to your channel, you know, I like your content, that would even mess up how I deliver this joint. If Jay said, yo, Celeb, I rocks with you, my guy, my sub count not only might skyrocket, but I'd even present my information differently. The fact that I'd rather be stuck on the island with Drake's catalog than Jay's catalog, I mean... I love a lot of what Jay-Z does, please don't get me wrong, right? But his direct association would filter the presentation. Anyway, let me keep it moving, man. Check this out. DJ Academics posted a pic of a chain, right? And in my opinion, it was a nice, it was a nice design. I like it, right? I mean, I wouldn't rock it or anything. It was more like the type of chain you hold in your fist and, you know, hold it out to the camera like, yo, look at this joint right here. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, Jeweler Maza New York posted a glistening King Von pendant to their Instagram on Thursday. And it was assumed that the chain belonged to Lil Durk. And was in commemoration of the artist King Vaughn. The chain features a heavy diamond-encrusted pendant which features a portrait of King Vaughn complete with meticulous details like his OTF chain iced-out watch and blonde-dyed braids. Well, Lil Durk posted a message concerning the chain and stated, that's not my weak-ass chain, close quote prompting Maza of New York, the maker of the chain, to scurry onto the stage and make a statement saying, uh, I, I took the Vaughn design down out of respect for the situation. I posted the design I completed a while back to actually show love to Dirk. I never said it was his, and media sources said what they wanted to say. Legitimate sources actually contacted me, and I told them the scenario. I have nothing but love for Dirk and his craft. In my opinion, the piece was fire. Of course you're saying that, you made it. Anyway, in my opinion, the piece was fire and would have been a great start to a long-lasting relationship. Close quote, before walking off the, storming off the stage. Sounding like he's on a business end of a knife. Hello, I'm Michael Castile, an attorney with the Las Vegas Defense Group. Other than the crime of murder, in Nevada, sexual assault is the most serious offense you can face in this state. If you are convicted, in addition to facing a lifelong prison term, you're also required to register for life as a sex offender. Even if eventually you are paroled, it may be difficult to land a job with this on your record. In Nevada, the legal definition of sexual assault otherwise known as rape, is when a person subjects another person to penetration sexually against the will of the victim 
or under conditions in which the perpetrator knows or should know the victim is mentally or physically incapable of resisting. In short, it's illegal for you to have sex with someone against a person's will or when you know or should have known the person lacked the capacity to say no or to understand what was happening. In some cases, where someone unlawfully touches another person in a sexual manner that falls short of sexual assault, such as groping, for example, he or she might be charged with a lesser Nevada crime of open and gross lewdness. In Nevada, even though rape is one of the most serious crimes you can be accused of, it also lends itself to several effective defenses. The following are some of the strategies a defense lawyer may employ in Nevada sexual assault cases. Number one, false accusations. Judges and prosecutors know that innocent people can be falsely accused of rape, whether it's out of anger, jealousy, revenge, a way to win child custody, or just an honest misunderstanding. If your attorney can raise a reasonable doubt by showing that someone may have falsely accused you, your sexual assault case should be dismissed. Number two, lack of proof. Unless there was a video recording of the incident, sexual assault can be extremely difficult to prove because it often comes down to a case of he says, she says. As long as the state cannot show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, sexual assault charges should be dropped. And finally, number three, consent. Rape is forcing someone to have sex against their will or when they're too incapacitated to resist. Therefore, if your attorney can show that the victim gave his or her consent to have sex, then Nevada sexual assault charges cannot stand. If you or someone you know has been charged with sexual assault, please don't hesitate to contact our law office at 702-DEFENSE to arrange for your free consultation, or visit us at 702defense.com for more information. Thank you. With regard to defenses to animal cruelty charges, of course, there's always the defense of insufficient evidence because the state has to prove the charges against you beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, you also can claim defense of self-defense. If you're being attacked by an animal, you have absolutely the right to defend yourself. So if you were attacked by a vicious dog and you had to kill the dog to defend yourself, you would have a valid self-defense claim. Another facet of self-defense would be defense of others. So that if your animal was being attacked by another animal, you would have the right to use deadly force to kill that animal if necessary to prevent your animal from being killed by a vicious dog. Finally, uh, intent would come into play in some types of animal cruelty related charges, such as dog fighting. Let's just say you sold the dog and you had no intent that that dog would be used for animal fighting, but it was of a specific breed that had a violent nature and ultimately the person who purchased your animal used it for dog fighting. If you did not intend the animal to be used for that purpose, you could not be convicted of selling an animal for the purpose of fighting.
test section 0.060 is an enhancement having to do with substantial bodily harm. And it can increase the penalties for a number of crimes such as assault with a deadly weapon, uh, battery, uh, stalking. If in the course of committing such a crime, you cause prolonged physical pain or an injury which causes substantial risk of death or prolonged impairment uh, or disfigurement of a bodily organ can be charged as an enhancement for substantial bodily injury here in the state of Nevada. Substantial bodily harm does not include any type of financial harm or loss. Examples of substantial bodily harm here in Nevada might include broken bones, uh, injury requiring stitches, organ damage, paralysis, severe burns, wounds from gunshots, and concussions. There is case law which may define what type of injury would be upheld as constituting substantial bodily harm, but that would be a jury question for jurors to decide. Uh, it may be in defending someone where there's an enhancement for substantial bodily harm, you might have a battle of the experts where the defense side would hire doctors to argue whether or not uh, there was disfigurement or whether it was prolonged uh, physical injury uh, as a, uh, from a medical standpoint. But again, a jury would ultimately decide through rendering a verdict that would give definition to what they deem to be substantial bodily harm. Yeah, that was torture, but it built something in me that I hadn't had before then. Uh, it gave me a drive. It, it, it gave me a, a, a commitment that that I had never discovered in myself as a as a 21 year old. And and let me just say how it was so easy for me to get caught up in the drug selling when I came home in 1998, because that's what the culture was doing. When I came home in 1998, Master P had just dropped an a, 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 a album called Ghetto Dope. Ghetto Dope. Me, 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 me crack like this. And it taught you how to cook crack from step one to step ten. So when I came home after being gone from 91 to 98 and I come back and I look into the black community, everybody's selling dope. The dope man image is what the girls want. It's what the preachers like. Everybody like the dope man image. So everybody's selling dope. They rapping about it. So, man, I just get in line with the culture. I get in line with the culture because the culture almost made it like it, it was logical to sell dope over working because the rewards were so great, right? So many black children of our culture followed that mon that bullshit, nigga hustling, selling dope. Me, 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 me crack like this. So we went from that to trapping to now drilling and killing. So the culture 
reshaped me after all the good that TYC had done. My culture reshaped me in the pimping and the drug dealing. I went back to robbing, nigga snatching purses, all that shit, nigga, because that's what the culture was doing. The penalties are up to five years in the state prison if force was involved, up to four years in state prison if there was no force, and if the panderer uh, forces someone under the age of 18 to engage in sex, the penalty is up to 20 years in state prison, and if no force was used with a minor, it's up to 10 years in state prison. Additionally, the fines can be very severe, up to a half a million dollars for someone convicted of pandering. I'm Nevada criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. My office gets lots of calls by people who are worried that they may have outstanding warrants in Las Vegas. You can usually find out by doing a simple online search. Here are three things to know. One, to check online for warrants issued by the Las Vegas Justice Court, go to the Court Records Inquiry website provided below in the video description and follow the prompts. Cases with active warrants will appear with a red and white W to the left of the case number. Two, to check online for warrants issued by the Las Vegas Municipal Court, go to the Marshall Warrant Search website provided below in the video description and enter the person's name and social security number. Three, you can also check warrant status by phone. For information on warrants issued by the Las Vegas Justice Court, call 702-671-3201. For information on warrants issued by the Las Vegas Municipal Court, call 702-229-6201. Although these websites will indicate whether you have a warrant issued by a judge in a Las Vegas Justice Court or Municipal Court, if there is an arrest warrant from a local police department, unfortunately, you may not be able to determine whether such a warrant exists without the help of an attorney. If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE for a free consultation. The attorneys of the Las Vegas Defense Group are here to fight for the best resolution possible in your case. There are some misconceptions about conspiracy. Some people think that in order to prove a conspiracy, that two or more people have to be charged. That's not the case in the state of Nevada. In Nevada, one person can be charged with a conspiracy, as long as two or more people were involved. Additionally, one can conspire with a law enforcement officer to commit a crime, even though the law enforcement officer was acting in an undercover capacity and had no actual intent to carry out the crime. And you'll be safe. Now, because it's card specific, Let's say that you have two credit cards. One's a $1,000 credit limit, and the other's 5,000 credit limit, okay? The way the credit algorithm works is 
if you're maxing out, let's say your $1,000 credit card and you've got 800 bucks on it. But over here on your $5,000 credit card, you only got 50 bucks on it. You got 1% on this one, but over here you have 80%, right? Because you have 800 out of 1,000, okay? Now combined total, right? If you took the average, your average is only gonna be 40%. Two credit cards, one's basically at zero, the other is at 80% maxed out. So you're at a 40% average, still bad but it doesn't work on average. It works on card specific. So each card is making impact your credit score. What you wanna do is start with the, cre the credit limit that has the lowest credit limit, okay? So as you're writing down the statement dates, right? Your card, Capital One, Discover, Barclays, whatever your credit cards are, and you have your statement date next to each one of them, okay? Also write down your balance right in that next line. What is the balance? What do you owe on each one of those? And then what you're going to do is you're going to start with the lowest credit limit. This is called a snowball effect. This is how you go get momentum. Making that first payment, bringing it down to 2%. Remember I talk about 2% utilization. So let's say we've got three credit cards, right? We've got that 1,000. We've got a 5,000. We've got 10,000. You're going to start with a 1,000. You owe 800 bucks on that card. You're at 80% utilization. You, your only focus is to get that credit card down to 2%. You need to get it down to 20 bucks. That is your only goal. And trust me, when this happens, if you time it, because you remember, you're making your payment before the statement date. So when that card reports, it's gonna immediately raise your credit score dramatically. So even if your average, you're looking at credit card and you're like, my average is 28% utilization because you have multiple credit cards and it's spread between, it is making impact per card, not the average. So you'll see that once you get that lowest one paid off, down to 2%, don't pay it off completely. $1,000 credit card, you want it down to 20 bucks, okay? That's what I want you to focus on, getting it down to 2%. Once you get momentum, you get that thing paid off, down to 2%, move up to the $5,000 card. Get that down to 2%. And then move up to the $10,000 card. Move that down to 2%. And then you're going to see your score is going to dramatically increase, right? Payment history is 35%. The biggest contributor to your credit score is going to be your payment history. Now, what does payment history mean? Payment history means you guys paying your bills on top, okay? A credit card, a car, a house, a loan is not going to be late until it becomes day 31. So if your due date for example, is the 7th of the month, okay? You don't make your payment till the 10th. It's not gonna go in your credit report, okay? Just because your payment was due on the 7th and you made the payment on the 10th, now you may have a $30 late payment, but it's not gonna report until the following 8th of the month. So your payment's due on the 7th, and you're like, man, I, I, I didn't, whatever happened, boom, 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 and you don't pay it till the 30th, 23 days later still not going to go in your credit report. It's only going to report 31 days late. When you're 31 days after the payment due date, that's when it hits the credit report. Okay, and that's what you want to avoid because late payments are going to make the biggest impact on your credit score negatively. Okay, now we have late payments. Okay, 
If you're looking at the high impact and you're like, okay, Mike, I'm looking at my high impact and I've got my payment history is at 97% and uh, my utilization is at 80%, okay, and I've got three derogatories, okay, what are some things you could do? Well, just use the same formula. Go through the credit cards, find out your statement dates on each one of them, get the first credit card, the lowest credit limit down to 2%. It's the first thing you want to do, okay? Now, collections and late payments and charge-offs are the other high impact. So what are some things we can do? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to realize that you have two options. According to the FCRA 1970, 1970, they say that you, as a consumer, can challenge anything that you feel is unfair, incorrect, obsolete, or erroneous on your credit report. So now you're like, okay, cool. I can do it myself. Option one. Option two is you can hire a company to do this for you. And option three is you can hire a badass to do it for you, right? And the reason I say that is because, you know, Johnny's trunk credit repair who promises you the world, or you use a company, right? I'm not going to trash any companies here, but you use a monthly company. Commonly prosecuted crime by the U.S. government, mail fraud, right? You'll often see this in white-collar crimes, very common. What is it? How do they prosecute people, right? Those are the questions that we're going to answer right now. Mail fraud is broadly defined. It's defined by U.S. Code 18 U.S.C. 1341. It means to obtain money or property under false pretenses or to sell or distribute, exchange, supply, or use counterfeits. Now, does mail fraud only apply to mail being mailed out of state or does it involve the use of any private or government mail carrier, right? The answer is any use of mails falls within under the gambit of the mail fraud statute, like the U.S. Postal Service, a private interstate carrier, to commit any crime of dishonesty, theft, all of that will result in a mail fraud charge. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That you got me? Sense. That makes sense, that makes sense. Wow, that's deep, that's deep. Okay. That's, that's the so can part. I do it? You gonna put me on? Most definitely. Okay, you know some people need some trade lines? Because I got some clear cards. They're gonna contact you. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you. But why yeah. shouldn't I though? Like, because somebody, somebody's like, yo, you shouldn't do that. Because uh, of the person, obviously they don't get a card. You don't give them a card. But no. Is there any reason? Fear. Somebody put Just fear, fear into you. They said, yo, they said. <laughs> You can't do it or don't do it because of this, right? And the only thing you could think of, what if somebody gets access to my credit cards, right? I'm a statistic. What if somebody get access to my credit cards? You think about this, right? Is that how many safety alerts do you have for your credit card? I got a few, yeah. Okay, do you have your push notifications on? Yeah, well, somebody, See, yeah. listen, I tell people this, is that one, 
all my credit card alerts and my credit cards go to an email specifically for my credit cards. It's the only push notification that's going to pop up is credit card alerts, transactions, things that happen. It's the only thing that's going to pop on my screen for my emails. Most people don't think to monitor, but people don't get access to it. Then reverse engineer. Hey Dave, you give me 650, I'm gonna add you to my credit card to help you build your credit. Hey Dave tried to access my credit card and just gave me 650 for trying to access it because now I blocked him and took him off and now he has no purpose. Mm -hmm. What's Dave? Dave, how much money will Dave have to spend to try to go out and capitalize off of somebody else versus understanding that I can get my own credit card and capitalize off myself? I've been in this business over three years. I've never had anybody compromise a credit card. Hmm. All right, y'all. Y'all see what it is, okay? I got you, okay? A lot. I got yeah. That's so dope, man. That's dope. So, one, I want to say thank you for, um, for educating our community, because when I see the boxes, it's not just all black, but yeah. it'd be a lot of us. You know what I mean? Like, so that that's very, very important. Give me a testimonial. Give me two testimonials from your students. From my students, um, I got First one. off, how many students you got? Right now, we're pushing a little over 500 in the mentorship. Um, and about a thousand in my financial literacy course. Dang, Ooh. that's dope. And, and, oh yeah, so are yeah. we going to talk about the morning meetup? Can we talk about Okay, we can. We definitely can. So, yeah, yeah so we got the, uh, I have a morning meetup where I'm literally on a call every single morning teaching entrepreneurship. It's really a strong community. We're, we're hovering around 90-something people every single morning from all, all across the country, people don't want to start their business. Um, they need a community of people. Like it's a, it's a whole built-in audience. And we talk literally every morning. We like a family. And uh, Marcus called me, he was like, yo, I want to add, yo, and this wasn't even, he didn't call me like, yo, Dave, I need an affiliate link. Like, yo, I want to I wanna sell your course. He was like, yo, how much would it be for me to just add my students to your morning meetup. And um, I just thought, I thought I was big. I told my wife, like, yo, this, this is a real stand-up guy. Like, I just want to add value to my community. Yeah. They don't got to pay no extra money. He said, I, he said, I'm paying for my students, which I thought was really, really dope, man. I appreciate it. So, yeah, and the reason being is that, is that mindset is everything. I, the, the, to operate boldly, to be out here, and it takes daily reassurance. Mm -hmm. I realize me as one person, I see how much we interact in the Facebook group, how much we interact in our Instagram groups. Um, and it's just that daily interacting. So when I seen what you do with Sleepless Nights, I go, it's amazing to have somebody that's willing to wake up every morning and give an hour of time, that reassurance to get your day started. Get that day started, keep it on your mind, and it keeps us motivated to go out and execute, right? Yeah. Go out and kill something. If you want to be successful, I'm going to tell you now, you got to kill something every day. And as brutal as it sounds, you have to do it every day. You don't get days off. Mm 
I don't care what day it is. I don't care if it's a holiday. I don't care. You have to execute and win that day. And I, I delivered a message and I went live and I talked about that. And they went crazy. And I go, listen, you got to kill something every day. And I go, man, my man David Shands kills something every day. Every day he wakes up and kills a call for his people to motivate them to go out and kill something every day. I want to add, I don't want to do that for my community. I want to add somebody who already does it naturally. So that way that gets added to my community is something that's already that's awesome. in you that goes out and kills. You already do it. That's awesome. I don't want to duplicate what somebody else does. No, let's add and bring it together. Collaboration over competition. Pimping and weapon possession. It was also noted that an alleged witness to the prosecution that agreed to testify against Chief Keefe mysteriously went missing before the upcoming trial. Um, Mr. Chief, do you have anything to do with that? The Chief's next arrest happened on April 8th, 2017 in Miami Beach, Florida. Police claim that while Chief Keefe was driving in a green Lamborghini, his passenger got out in the middle of traffic and started talking to the car behind theirs. Cops saw the commotion and thought they saw an exchange being made between the two suspects. This led to the police pulling over Chief Keefe and ultimately discovering marijuana in one of the vehicles. Keefe was charged with a DUI and was booked into jail moments later. During his sentencing, the cops revealed that they had found eight different drugs in the chief's system at the time of his arrest, all of which included morphine, codeine, promethazine, THC, hydrocodone, norcodine, dihydrocodine, and hydromorphone. Sosa eventually avoided jail on a guilty plea, but was sentenced to six months probation and 50 hours of community service. The final charge was reckless driving. And last but not least, we have the Chief's final arrest in South Dakota. In June of 2017, Chief Keefe was arrested after airport security found marijuana edibles and blunts in his bag. During his hearing the following Friday, Chief Keefe pled no contest to possession of a controlled substance, a Class 5 felony that is punishable with up to five years in prison. He was later released on bond, but was required to come back to South Dakota for his trial. His trial was almost two years later, on April 26, 2019, and the outcome was all in his favor. The judge gave the chief a suspended imposition of a sentence, which means no conviction will be entered as long as he meets the conditions set by a judge. Apparently, a defendant can only receive a suspended imposition of a sentence once in their lifetime in the state of South Dakota. When it was all said and done, Chief Keefe was ordered to pay a $500 fine, $104 in court costs, and $99 in testing fees. All the other charges were dropped. If you're wondering what the Chief is up to nowadays, well... It looks like he just sits around in his mansion all day, making music, smoking weed, and playing video games. Once in a while he'll travel around to do some shows, but other than that, he seems to live a pretty chill life. And is staying out of trouble. 
His last arrest was in June of 2017, so almost two years without an arrest is pretty good. Let's hope he can keep it up. Well, there you have it. All of Chief Keefe's criminal history jammed into one video. If you enjoyed this video, make sure to give it a thumbs up. And if you want to see more content like this, then make sure to hit that subscribe button and turn on all notifications. Also, feel free to comment on who you want to see a criminal history video on next. That's all I have for today. I'm out. I want to introduce you to a well-educated man who went to prison. We're going to hear about why he went to prison and what he did while he was in prison. David, thanks so much for being on the program. Tell us a little bit about your background before we get into your prison experience. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I was a practicing and licensed attorney in the state of Illinois for almost 15 years prior to becoming a uh, management member of a, of a startup biotech company in the Chicago area. Uh, and uh, that ultimately led me to prison uh, where I was convicted uh, in uh, the early 2000s of a white collar crime of uh, wire and mail fraud. Uh, Let, let's I, talk about that for a second because people might have some level of, you know, that, that doesn't seem congruent. You're a, you're an attorney. Uh, you later became a CEO, and that you found, and yet you found yourself in the crosshairs of prosecutors. Tell us a little bit about what it felt like to learn that the Department of Justice was targeting you for prosecution. The case ultimately began as a uh, Securities and Exchange Commission civil case, and there was a referral, as I understood it, made to the uh, U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office in, in the Northern District of Illinois. How long did good. that take? You found out that there was a SEC investigation, and was there actually a finding in the Securities and Exchange Commission investigation? No, actually. That began, the SEC investigation began uh, in early 2002, uh, and uh, the SEC uh, ultimately did not uh, come to a conclusion in that case until after the criminal case was resolved. It was actually put on hold during the pendency of the criminal case. So the so, cases were going simultaneously. First, there was a Securities correct. Exchange Commission case. Then that was put on hold and the DOJ picked it up. Is that right? That's correct. And when you found out that you were a target of, of uh, criminal charges, what did you do? Did you did you agree to cooperate or did you go to trial or, or did you plead guilty? What did you do? Well, when I first found out I was a target was during a, uh, a raid of our corporate facilities. And I wasn't told I was a target, but it was basically a common sense conclusion. I hired an attorney at that time and uh, the case ultimately was not prosecuted or the initiation of the prosecution didn't begin for another two to three years. So there was a, a long period of time that I remained the CEO of the company and chairman of the board, but then ultimately I relinquished those positions. Others came involved and- Tell us about that's that. That's, that's interesting. So you, there, the, the Department of Justice raided your facility, then there was a two or three year period before you were charged. Is that what I understood you to say? That's correct. And were you operating uh, in the capacity as if this was going to be, you were going to be exonerated from that raid? 
or were you concerned that there could possibly be criminal implications? I was quite concerned there was likely to be criminal uh, repercussions. The problem was that if the company shut its doors at that point, there certainly would have been, in my view, criminal repercussions. So I continued as I was. So you continued, and then ultimately they returned an indictment. Did they arrest you, or did they just serve you? I was not. I was never arrested. Uh, I had counsel at that point, who the U.S. attorney was familiar with. So I, uh, I, uh, I just it was a uh, no cash. Uh, self-recognizance bond scenario where I simply appeared for my arraignment. And you appeared for your arraignment, and then how did it ultimately end up with regard to the adjudication of that case? Did you plead guilty or did you go to trial? I ultimately pled guilty approximately two years later. What was the cost of litigating that case? Do you recall, David? Um, I believe it was uh, $25,000. So not a tremendous amount of legal ex- legal fees at that time. Um, were you happy with the representation you received? Yes. And you ultimately agreed to plead guilty to a sentence of how long? 14 years. Well, was- let, me, let me backtrack. I did not agree to a, a fixed term of incarceration. Um, we simply agreed to plead guilty without a determination or agreement on the loss figure, which is the large driver of the sentence ultimately in these mail fraud, wire fraud cases, uh, my responsibility for a particular loss figure. So because that was left open, I didn't agree to a, uh, an, an amount of years. That was never- What were you anticipating with regard to a sentence when you agreed to take the plea agreement? Uh, in the area of 10 years. It was, uh, I was told by my counsels at that point, because I also had sentencing, uh, uh, specialist in sentencing at that point, that they were confident that I would be able to get to a minimum security camp initially. That did not occur. So you thought that you would get 10 years. Had you not gone, had you not accepted? Under NRS section 574, Point zero seven zero. it is illegal to run, train, sell, or watch an animal fight. For dog fighting, uh, it's a Category D felony with a penalty of up to four years for a first-time offense if you're running a dog fight. For a second-time offense, you're looking at up to five years in state prison and a $10,000 fine and for a third time offense for dog fighting, you're looking at a category B felony with up to six years in state prison. Welcome to the credit game. This is the first and only channel that comes to you every single day, Monday through Friday, and sometimes on Saturday, to give you the knowledge you need. If it's your first time on the channel, please do me a favor. It helps out tremendously. I know I asked you guys to do this, 
but hit that subscribe button. I don't know what side it's on. It's on one of these sides. The subscribe button really helps. It helps out you, right? You become a master when you can do 10,000 hours of anything in your life. 10,000 hours, you become a master at that craft, which equals end up being just slightly over a year. But you become a master, right? So the more you do things, the better you get, right? Chess masters have got so many hours in, and that's why they think 14 moves ahead. What if you could do that with credit? What would your credit look like, right? So that's why I teach every day. I don't come to you once a week. I come to you every single day to hold you accountable so you can watch the videos to make sure you learn. This channel is about learning. It's about taking action. It's about what mom and dad never did for us. Well, at least for me. And school's never taught, right? No school has ever taught the system of credit. No school has ever taught the system of finance other than professors in college, which is not real life. So why do I want to come to you every day? Because I want to make sure that you are watching the video. So do me a favor, subscribe, smash the like button if you could find your heart to do that as well, and turn on the bell notification. There's only three things I ask for you to do every day, and that makes our channel grow, which helps you and helps others and ultimately helps the United States raise the national credit average from 667 to over 700. Now, we're going to talk about a topic that, uh, again, just so you guys know, if it is your first time, you know that I get all my content straight from the heart, but also it's from what you guys are asking. This is probably the most asked question in credit repair, in credit in any type of credit situation that most people ask this question. That is, what is a good FICO score and how do I raise it? That is the number one question I get from clients. So, what is a good FICO score? Well, you have to look at, again, what FICO is. We'll talk about that. And also, what are you trying to do? So a good FICO score ultimately would be over 780, which is classified as class A or excellent. Anything over 780? So from 780 to 850 would be considered the same. Same interest rates, same. Anything over that, anything over 780, you're just saying I'm bragging, right? I got an 827. It makes no difference from someone from a 781, Okay. Somebody with an 813, somebody with 849, somebody would made a perfect credit score. It is the same. So what is a good FICO score? I would say a great FICO score would be 780 plus. There are 150 million people in America right now, especially what we just went through with the economy, that have a credit score under 625. Million people suffer from under a score of 625. How does that how does that happen? Like I get it happens. And it's not your fault because you never learned it. Mom and dad may have not teach it. No school ever taught. How would you know other than trial and error? It's called the credit game. That's why I created it. I created it for me and I just happened to share it with the world. But I'm telling you this is that. I want to come to you every day because I want you to watch the videos every day so you learn what to do and what not to do. And I'm telling you ahead of time, if you guys that are under 650 credit score, 
have not taken action on your credit, it is going to be very, very difficult to get a vehicle, a credit card, a home, start a business, finance stuff, get new furniture, get loans. You guys are paying two times what you should be paying for a mortgage. Almost double. $2,000, like let's say a $200,000 home, right? Somebody with good credit should be paying somewhere between, I don't know, $1,000, $1,100. You guys are paying $1,800, $1,900 for the same home. For a car, I got somebody that said the other day, I'm blessed, right? You guys hear, you know, like, I'm blessed. You're blessed. You're paying $650 for a 2011 Charger. And they're putting on Facebook, I'm blessed. That car goes for about 300 bucks a month at best. But you're happy, but you settled. You know, I don't, I don't BS you. I, I don't come here to, to BS you. I don't sugarcoat anything. I tell you the facts of credit because this is your life. And your life matters to me and I want to help you. But you got to commit to yourself. I get questions all the time about crimes involving moral turpitude. And in this video, I'm going to talk about what they are, but I'm also going to talk about why they're significant. And really, they're significant in three types of situations. The first is, if you're not a citizen of the United States, if you're an immigrant and you are convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude, then many times it will trigger immigration consequences, such as deportation, denial of reentry, or denial of the chance to naturalize to the United States. The second situation where it's significant is if you hold a professional license, such as a nursing license or a license to practice law, then many times a conviction for a crime involving moral turpitude will trigger disciplinary proceedings that could cause your license to be suspended or revoked or your inability to get a license later on if you apply for one. The third situation involves being a witness in court. As a general rule, judges will allow the opposing party to question you or impeach your credibility if you testify as a witness in court and you have convictions of moral turpitude. So for example, the other side could say, well, isn't it a fact that two years ago you were convicted of forgery? Now, as for the definition itself of crimes involving moral turpitude, it's somewhat murky. But generally speaking, these are crimes that involve dishonesty or fraud. Examples would include burglary, child abuse, criminal threats, perjury, robbery, felony hit and run. They almost always involve a deliberate criminal intent to do wrong. To the extent that you are charged with a crime involving moral turpitude, and you're in one of these situations where it could really affect you, that is, you're not a citizen of the United States, you hold a professional license, you plan to get a professional license, or you plan to testify in court someday, then you want to do everything you can to fight the case and either get it dismissed or at least get it reduced to a lesser offense that is not a crime of moral turpitude. 
We've had a lot of experience and a lot of success helping clients do just that. Questions, you want to give them some further insight? Sure, Rusty. We would like to focus our questions today on questions that pertain to basic guideline application. However, if you have faxed in a question that we don't get to on our broadcast today, please feel free to call us on our helpline, which operates Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. The number for that is 202-502-4545. Let's go ahead and get started with the videotape and Frank Larry. Before we get started, just wanted to uh, make a couple of points about resources, you know, at the Sentencing Commission, about some of the things that you can uh, have access to. Now, I know the probation officers know a lot about our uh, helpline. We operate a helpline at the Sentencing Commission Monday through Friday from uh, 8.30 to 5 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time. And I can tell you, if you call us, We'll do as much as we can to answer your questions. The other resource I'm going to point out is our website, www.ussc.gov. On our website, we have a training and education section where we put up a lot of training materials, a lot of training documents. We, we do our best to keep it current. And we're always looking for ideas, too, about our website. I know a lot of you out there are internet savvy, in which case, please, you know, call, you can call me because I'm sort of uh, overseeing our guideline and education section on the uh, internet. But it's turned into a very popular spot for people to go to for information. In terms of all you're going to hear today, about how to apply the guidelines and how the guidelines work. Everything is going to be moving toward this sentencing table. Just as a snapshot, you have the offense level running down this axis, top to bottom, and the criminal history category goes the other way. It goes horizontally, categories one through six. So when you end up with a an offense level at a, let's say, a 10 and a category 1 criminal history, basically no criminal history, we're at a guideline range of 6 to 12 months. And that's basically what the court has to use absent a departure up or down. Now, before we actually get into the sort of the, I call it sort of the guideline crunching, you know, all the numbers and everything. Let's talk about what we refer to as determining an appropriate sentence. And we talk about it in terms of a sort of like a two-step process. The first step being to determine the appropriate guideline range. And there's no substitute for that. You got to go in, do the application, get the guideline range. But we're also going to ask you to do sort of a second step, and that is to make what we call this refined assessment. It could be that, you know, there's a factor maybe the guidelines didn't take into account that might distinguish this case, take it out sort of the heartland of cases, 
to make this case a little bit different that might justify, you know, um, a downward departure or possibly an upward departure. But we, we're asking you to sort of stand back and so that an appropriate sentence may be a sentence within the guideline range or it may be a departure because departures are part of the guideline system. They were intended to be part of the guideline system. We're not out telling everybody to just keep departing all the time from the guidelines. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is where there's a bona fide reason for departure, we're encouraging you to, to be mindful of this. Now, in 1984, when the Sentencing Reform Act was placed into law, it made sweeping changes to the way federal sentencing was done. And what we went to was a system of determinate sentencing, basically doing away with parole. And as you know, there's no parole in the federal system anymore. But instead of, you know, the parole, the court actually can uh, impose periods of supervised release. It's similar to the parole, but under supervised release, if a, if a person violates the supervised release term, that person goes back to the judge under the current law, under the Sentencing Reform Act, as opposed to going back to the parole commission under the way the previous law worked. So you do have these terms of supervised release which follow a person's imprisonment term. They do their prison term, potentially then come out on a period of supervised release. You have probation officers who, uh, who are responsible for supervising people. Significant reduction in good time under the Sentencing Reform Act. Under the old law, most prisoners were eligible for at least a third off. Usually they were eligible for parole after a third of their sentence. Under the Sentencing Reform Act, that was reduced to uh, 54 days a year after the first year. Also, the Sentencing Reform Act specifically provided for repeal of a sentence under 37. Now, what we think are multiple harms in terms of guideline application purposes. Sometimes it is best to look at the multiple counts as really a one composite harm. So sometimes we'll make the decision that even though you have multiple counts violations, multiple, vi multiple uh, uh, counts of conviction, uh, that you really just have one composite harm. It's best viewed as one composite harm. So the, the approach to multiple counts is not to look so much at the counts, but to look at how many harms do we have really occurring here. And there's several ways which the determination is made as to whether you have a single harm or multiple harms. Now, the grouping rules are the things that we look at to make the decision as to whether we have multiple harms or a single composite harm. You'll hear and even read in, in the case law, these were grouped under Rule A, these were grouped under Rule B. Uh, so so they're, they're referred to as rules, even though it's still just another guideline in the manual. Now, the steps in multiple counts, it, it, I think basically it can be broken down to two steps, and sometimes you don't even have to get to the second step, so I think it's really pretty easy in, in that regard. Step one is grouping. 
Grouping leads us to the determination as to whether we have one composite harm, even though we've got multiple counts of conviction, one composite harm, or whether we have multiple harms. First, you see grouping counts under Rule D, because we think that's the easiest rule to group under. And if you don't group them under Rule D, how about Rules A, B, or C? Do they work toward grouping? And we'll go through this process. If you have made the determination that you have more than one harm, then just like the five robberies where we say, well, we're going to give some additional punishment, but we're not going to give five times the punishment that we would have for, for one robbery, the process the commission sends you through is called incremental increases in punishment. It's, it's, we refer to it as sort of a unit process where you have to assign what are called units. We'll talk about that. And then these units will translate into additional offense levels, the additional offense levels representing this increase in punishment for these multiple harms. So we've got the two steps, and let me explain what the first step is, the process of grouping. Uh, if counts are grouped together, basically we're going to treat them as one composite harm. Uh, obviously, in the alphabet, D comes after A, B, and C. But we have not found anything that, that somehow uh, upsets the application of the guidelines when you get to the multiple count section to use rule D first before you use rules A, B, or C. The reason we suggest grouping under rule D first, if the counts can be grouped under rule D, is that more counts than any other type of, of count are going to fall under this type of uh, rule. And that rule says that if counts use the same or similar guidelines, I got 50 counts of drug trafficking, hmm, they use the same guideline. Each count uses the 2D1.1 drug trafficking guideline. And if that guideline is included at 3D1.2D, if you go into your guidelines manual to 3D1.2 under Section D, and we list the guidelines that are covered there, and drug trafficking is listed there, uh, then you apply the guidelines as if for a single count application. Basically what you do, you add up the quantities of the drugs, you apply the guidelines one time. They have been grouped together. They're treated as a composite harm as such, because what you've done, you've looked at the harm from each of the counts by aggregating the quantities. You're giving some consideration for all that harm when you apply the guidelines that one time. I got five counts of fraud. Hmm, each count of fraud, as I look up the statutory violation and go to the uh, Appendix A, I'm sent to the guideline 2F1.1 for each of these counts of conviction. So I know these, these counts of conviction are all using the same guideline in Chapter 2. And I know from going to 3D1.2D, looking at the list, that these guy, this guideline I'm using for all these counts is the one that's listed there. So the approach is I aggregate all the monies related to this fraud conduct, apply the fraud guideline one time, and the number I come up with, the offense level, that is a, a number that represents this composite harm. So that's the approach. And again, 80% of your cases, probably better in some districts, 
are going to be your money laundering, your drug trafficking, your thefts and embezzlements, your frauds, your immigration offenses, counterfeiting, uh, a variety of others are listed there, but these are the ones you're going to see most often. Now, some offenses are excluded from grouping under Rule D. You've got multiple counts of robbery or assault or murder or kidnapping, all these crimes of violence we talked about.